You're listening to episode 149 of the Mad Chatters podcast, August 2nd, 2017. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Mad Chatters Podcast, your very important date with the happenings at Walt Disney World and around the Disney Universe. I'm Derek, and joining me today are my fellow chatters, Matthew. Howdy. And Jeremy. I'm a rebel just for kicks now. To kick off today's show, we're going to make our way to Main Street USA, where we're going to highlight once again, another window featuring a Disney legend. They got their name on a window on Main Street, USA. This week, the Disney community was in mourning over the loss of a Disney legend. A true Disney legend, not just a title that's given... Um, at the D23 Expo for media exposure. But this man truly lived up to the name, Disney legend. And that is the passing of Marty Sklar. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Marty Sklar is a former Imagineer, as well as a man who holds the distinct title of being the only person present at every single Disney park opening in the world. Uh, Marty was born in 1934 in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and he began working for the Walt Disney Company one month before Disneyland opened in July of 1955. Uh, He began began his his Disney career as a writer and a communications specialist. Uh, He wrote the newsletter, newspaper, whatever you want to call it, that appeared uh, in Disneyland. Um, As well as he wrote a lot of uh, the speeches and things that Walt used uh, throughout his time. So most likely if you're quoting Walt Disney saying something, particularly from the 50s and that time period, you're probably quoting the words of Marty Sklar. In 1961, Marty moved to Walt Disney Imagineering, or at the time as it was known, Wedway uh, Enterprises, or Wed Enterprises. Uh, and he was part of the team that helped develop many of the attractions that were featured in the 1964 World's Fair. And in 1974, he became an executive in the company, Uh, wearing many different roles, including creative development for the theme parks, shows, Disney Resort Hotels, and the Disney Cruise Line. As I mentioned before, he is the only person who has the distinction of being at all 12 Disney parks openings around the world. He spent 54 years working for the company, and in 2001, he was given the title Disney legend. Uh, Marty Sklar was one of those guys that no one ever had anything bad to say, Uh, He seemed to be just as genuine offset as he was on stage, and he, uh, like I said, truly was a Disney legend. A couple years ago, he wrote a book called Dream It, Do It, My Half Century Creating Disney's Magic Kingdoms. It's kind of his autobiography as well as some insight into the company, and I recommend everybody read it. I devoured it when it came out, and it'll give you a little insight to this man. And like I said, Marty passed away last week, and he will be missed. So we Mm -hmm. honor you, Disney legend. Marty Sklar. Mm. Yeah, I've always heard the nickname Jiminy Cricket for him because he was, I guess that's a reference to him being Walt's right hand man, like you said. He's kind of Jiminy Cricket looking. Oh, that's <laughs> it? Oh. <laughs> he got a little both of that going, yeah. I can see that. 
Yeah, one of the things I love about him is that since he did work so closely with Walt, I feel like Marty was one of those very few voices that when he said Walt would want this or Walt saw it like this, you could kind of trust it because he would... He so closely worked with Walt. Like you said, he constantly took notes whenever Walt spoke about things. Um, when when he wrote the script for the, the TV special that aired about the Florida Project, about Epcot that Walt wanted to do, um, I read this quote on, a web, on an interview he gave where it said, That concept was Walt's true passion at the end of his life. He made it so easy for me to write the script. All I had to do was refer to my seven pages of notes. And I just felt like he probably referred to his notes the rest of his life and referred back to those conversations he had with Walt, which, you know, now we're in 2017 and you don't get that a lot anymore. And now we have it even less so because Marty has passed on. But And yeah. if I remember correctly, his window uh, at Disneyland on Main Street is actually in the same general area that his office was when he first started for the company in 1955 there wherever his because he started like i said writing communications for disneyland park and right there near city hall and i think that if i remember that correctly his window is right there does it say marty or martin uh it says martin a sklar dean of the college of arts and sciences very cool i don't know where it is in walt disney world that should be the, his nickname that just sticks, the Dean. <laughs> the Dean, yes, because it says, uh, inspiring dreamers and doers of tomorrow. Mm. And that he did. This is truly the, as cliche as it sounds, the end of a particular era of Disney history. I mean, there's no one else that's been around for all of that and worked that closely with Walt that's still around, is there? They're they're very Sherman few and Brothers, far maybe the one Sherman uh, brother. Floyd Norman is still still kicking, I believe. Um, yeah, they're definitely the the people who were once removed from Walt are certainly getting fewer and fewer. So, well, Marty was the last of the Imagineers. Well, Floyd Norman was animator, right? He was. Yeah. So yeah, it's just kind of like the stalwarts of the particular silos are all. Drifting off into the afterlife. Sklar, Sklar was survived by his uh, wife of 60 years, Leah. And um, I think, you know, anytime you, you read about someone who had a wife of 60 years, presumably his only wife, um, that's to be obviously commended, as was Walt's marriage with, with Lillian, uh, not to be missed as one of their best accomplishments in their whole life that they weren't just about their work but they were obviously about their family as well Because we like you. Music. 
the things unseen. It's the hidden gems and things in between. Though perhaps hard to spot, we sure love them a lot. It's the small things after all. This is a segment where we like to devote a little time and express some appreciation for those often underappreciated, underrated, and overlooked items throughout Walt Disney World Resort, and or any Disney park, really. And it's just those little touches of detail or atmosphere or ambiance that add to the magic, even if they are not the, uh, even if they don't have the spotlight treatment, so to speak. And since this has been my theme for the last couple, I know... The eye rolls are coming, but look, you guys, have you ever noticed the floating items in the water in Pirates of the Caribbean? (laughs) I'm too busy looking at that door you told me to look at last time we did this. The doorway. Just last time, I I noticed people in the the boats were were, were noticing the things, too. Like, uh, when you get towards the end in the, the burning village, you look around, there's... There's debris in the water, and it's like, you know, it's anchored, obviously, and it was themed. First of all, it's supposed to be there. Right. I don't mean it's like, like <laughs> park cups thrown in there. but It's a Laffy Taffy wrapper. Like floating, you know, bottles, and there's some wood floating over there. I, I don't know. It's just one of those things. I know Pirates is Pirates, and I'll always be about the Pirates ride, but that's why I'm all about the Pirates ride, because everywhere you look, there's something that they didn't have to do, but they did, and it just adds to it. The first time I noticed this, it was a number of years ago, and it startled me because it was really dark, and um, I thought it was a, an animal of some kind that was in the, the – <laughs> like either a turtle or worse, like a snake, uh, because it's kind of bobbing in the water, you know, but it was it was it's a, a bottle, like a rum bottle or something. I don't know, but it's all over, mainly in the, the Burning Village area, but right before you get there – even next to uh, Old Bill with the rum and the cats, you can. There's some. There's a rum bottle out on the, the water. I mean, that's just genius. Small stuff. Yeah, uh, mine's over in Animal Kingdom. I think we've mentioned these these before. The signs that are all over Harambe, not just Harambe Market, but they're everywhere. Like sometimes they're painted on buildings. Sometimes they're on like a notice board that's behind a little wire cage. Um, and we've mentioned before how they're, I don't think they're racist, <laughs> but <laughs> because I'm pretty sure they're probably accurate to things, or they're probably very similar to things Joe Rody actually saw on his trips to Africa. But you know, words are purposely misspelled and the grammar isn't always the best, but they do add so much charm to that area. And I think you could probably walk around that land just looking at these signs, and it would take an hour or two of your time. Um, but they're so detailed. There, there's one that's advertising computer classes, and of course the picture of the computer is like a 1990 Apple whatever, Macintosh something. Um, there are signs all over for the Harambe Theater, you know, like now showing Festival of the Lion King, which is a nice little touch. Uh, there's signs for an electronic shop. One of my favorite is, you know that little red cart by the waving Mickey that it, it, it's like a little bicycle, whatever those things are called. And it's got play, a place on the back where it holds drinks and it says Wanjohi refreshment. And then at the bottom it says best choice for thirst. Yes. 
Like there's there's just like a random yes thrown at the end. And of course Jeremy's favorite, which says, is does not matter who you are or where you are from, we are all children of the world. Which that's not an advertisement for anything, but No, my fun is the one that says my favorite is the one that says famous sausages. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. I forgot. Your second favorite then, excuse me. Yes. But they're all over. They're, some are huge, you know, some are 10 feet wide, and then some are just on a little scrap of paper that's been torn out of someone's notebook. So look for them next time you're there. My small thing, the thing that I like uh, that I was reflecting on this week is I was thinking about the World Showcase and how much I miss it and how much I love the World Showcase. And one of the things I think that is often underappreciated is the architecture in Germany. I think the German Pavilion has some great little intricate details particularly in the toy shop like when you look up just the way there's little stuff hidden as far as some of the toys go in the rafters and just like that whimsical um bavarian style architecture it almost makes you feel like you're in a storybook in a sense or like a um who are they the brothers Grimm? are they german is that right Mm -hmm. uh you know you just automatically feel like you're in that sort of Mm -hmm. pinocchio-esque like situation even though pinocchio's italian the movie was based on (laughs) german architecture so i just appreciate that and like i said most people they like the world showcase but it's those little tiny details that make it what it truly is way back on episode 82 we highlighted the many forms of transportation that are available at walt disney world on that episode we talked about the pros and cons of taking things like the disney buses the disney ferry some of the smaller water taxis On today's show, we want to focus once again on transportation, but this time we are going to take a closer look at three specific modes of transportation that have very special connections to the Walt Disney Company. The Skyway, the Monorail, and the People Mover have a lot in common. Not only are they all above-ground modes of transportation, but for decades now, they all have been very closely connected with the Disney parks and really with Walt Disney himself because he was always looking for ways to make transportation easier and more efficient while at the same time lessening the need for cars and buses and things that, um, you know, just make a lot of noise. So we're going to look back at the history of these three forms of transportation, talk about why they mean so much to Disney fans in particular, and maybe even discuss what the future holds for each one. So with that being said, I'm going to send it to you, Matt. Which one are we going to talk about first? We're going to talk about the Skyway first, because chronologically speaking, it came first. And it's one of those odd things that just 20 years ago, at least in Walt Disney World, a little more than 20 years ago for Disneyland, um, that picture of the Skyway and people riding it... um, from one place to the next as a mode of transportation or just enjoying the scenery, that would have been an iconic image of Disneyland or the Magic Kingdom. It was featured in all the vacation videos for Walt Disney World as a child. And I remember specifically that that was just a thing. 
And now, 20 years later, a little over 20 years later for Disneyland, um, what's the Skyway? What even, you know, what are you talking about? Can I tell you how iconic it was really quick? Yeah. It was so iconic that in the episode of the Golden Girls, where Dorothy and Sophia go to Walt Disney World, and most of the episode takes place in the resort. In the hotel. (laughs) (laughs) But at the very end, when they decide they're going to ride Space Mountain, they show a shot of the Magic Kingdom. And yeah. featured prominently in that shot, the Skyway. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think about that. It was just it was it was it was an iconic image of Disney parks, and it's just no more. No Which more. leaves us wondering: Is anything sacred? Mm-hmm. Just you know, that just a side note. The original Skyway in Disneyland was opened in 1956, so we're talking about other than the railroad. The fur and and the boats and all the other you know opening day stuff, in terms of alternate transportation and this kind of this kind of nod to Walt's idea of the future being filled with all these various modes of transportation. This was the first three years before the monorail debuts in 1959. Three years before uh, submarine voyage and Matterhorn is there. The Skyway pops up between Fantasyland and. Tomorrowland, 1956. The original system was built by, and I, I'm just assuming this is the correct pronunciation, Von Roll uh, Limited, which is a company based in Bern, Switzerland. So it's really got that tie to uh, Scandinavian sky lift, sky bucket, you know, the, the kind of persona that it takes on in both parks over time. Um Interestingly enough, when I was looking at this company, Von Roll Limited, it's been around since the late 1800s, and it still exists today and um, employs over 2,000 people. So that's that's interesting to me. Very old company. I don't know, you know, what the history is behind them choosing them, unless they're the only ones that did it. I do know this was the first sky lift system of its kind in the United States. So there's, you know, Walt Disney World or uh, Disneyland, the Disney parks making history. Um, uh, yet again, so the, the 1956, 1959, there was a you know big uh, renovation there, and the different things were opening Matterhorn and the submarine voyage, and and they they altered the route a little bit to accommodate that, and that's what I was asking you guys before the the podcast started. I was asking if the two big holes in the Matterhorn were still there, because if you watch it, oh, you know where I saw it, the Disneyland sings sing along. A Disneyland fun sing-along video when they show the people in the Skylift. You can see that the Skylift buckets pass through, Skyway buckets pass through the Matterhorn. And there's just two big tunnel-like holes <laughs> made through the middle of the mountain, which you is kind of really, cool, but kind of an eyesore, up, too. <laughs> I would say it really messes up the uh, force perspective. Yeah. When you, these big giant holes in you the You've got a life-size bucket. bucket passing through the top <laughs> of the mountain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I assumed those holes were filled in, but when you asked that, my first thought was like, oh, I don't know, right? Yeah, surely. No, they are. We, w- I would have noticed yeah. big, giant holes in the side of the mountain. Other than 1959, um, the adjustments in 1980 when Fantasyland was renovated there at Disneyland, uh, these things were operational up until 1994 when they closed at Disneyland. Um, the reason given was some metal... You know, metal uh, structure problems with the with the towers, um, and it was just kind of, kind of just a fizzly end. You know, there was no heartfelt, tearful goodbyes. Just it closed for maintenance, 
and never reopened. And I found this interesting that the station in Fantasyland there, which was chalet themed, um, you know, kind of a Swiss Alps kind of feel next to Matterhorn, it, it also remained there for like 20 years <laughs> after the closing of the Skyway. So that brings us to the Disney World version, which opened on opening day. Between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland, uh, not much change happened at the Disney World version. It closed permanently in 1999. Uh, I don't really know the reason for that closure either. Five years after Disneyland, obviously. I remember being there in 1998 with my middle school band. Terrible, stupid trip with a bunch of middle school kids who didn't know what Disney World was and how to appreciate it. And we're riding the, the Skyway. I never thought riding the Skyway then, this is going to be the last ride on the Skyway forever. And uh, it was. And it closed. It took them forever to demolish the Tomorrowland station. I don't even remember when it was demolished. 2007-ish? 8? 9? Maybe later? And then the, uh, the, Fantasyland train, the Fantasyland station stayed there as stroller parking, which was I always thought was stupid. Um, until 2012, and of course, that's where the tangled restrooms are are currently. So, you know, from a from a practical standpoint, I can understand why these things got shut down. Because in today's world, I mean, people have always been idiots. Don't get me wrong, but in yeah. today's world where uh, everything is filmed and everything is a uh, legal battle, yeah. I can't imagine having guests overhead other guests with the ability to drop things on top yeah. of them being safe yeah as well as there was a uh at six flags st louis um where i grew up there was a lady who fell from a similar type attraction mm. in the 1980s and she went splat on the concrete below so Ooh, um i'm sure there's lots of uh liability with these kind of attractions I remember when the Disneyland Fantasyland station was torn down. Like, I want to say that was last year when they started work on Star Wars Land. Because I remember seeing it and being like, what? I only remember seeing that when we were in Disneyland. Oh, it was 2016. Yeah. There you go. And, and, they, and they said the, demo, the the demolition just happened overnight. Just boom. Oh, wow. It's gone. Because I remember looking it up and being like, well, then Jeremy and I had to have seen it because we were there in 2014, 2015. What does this thing look like? But I didn't notice it at all because it was all overgrown. It was completely covered by trees. And I'm like, they just let that thing sit there for decades? Well, there were rumors after rumors here at Disney World because they had left that station there. And, I mean, you could walk over there and it was still playing the old Swiss. That's where that's Fantasyland East's music. I mean, it's still it's still what's well, the Tangled music's played there. But back, you know, during the in the Pinocchio uh, Peter Pan area, that's where all the yodeling and stuff came yeah. from was that that kind of Swiss chalet theme that was there. And so um, that's that that's interesting. It was there. It's just suddenly gone, and then they made the Tangled restrooms. So there was rumors that it was coming back and all, which is interesting to think about, um, and that it kind of is coming back. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about all the D23 news. Uh, the Skyliner system was mentioned, and if you haven't had a chance to go online and actually look at what these things are going to look like, there's no way they were not channeling Skyway in their minds. I mean... It, it's not a generic, you know, gondola, just public transport-looking bucket or vehicle. It is a, it is a sky bucket. It, it looks like 
I'm, I'm sure it's going to be enhanced, obviously, and it's going to be enclosed with windows and, and air conditioned and all and fit more people and all. But, uh, you know, it, it's nice that they, at least in the design, you know, gave a little nod to to that. And also in the way of nods, I thought this was fun. I haven't seen this, but you, pro- you guys, I think, probably have. And that's apparently at the, the end of the first lift hill on Matterhorn. There is a crashed sky bucket as if the abominable snowman had ripped it apart yeah i really liked it a lot of disneyland fans complained because they were like sure just throw a bunch of crap in a pile and say it's new theming but i thought it was a nice little touch yeah i think that's a good idea yeah it's like harold the abominable snowman has come in and ripped everything to shreds and yeah yeah let's be more upset that his name is harold um uh okay i have to ask a question though about okay so from what i understand this is a pretty slow loading attraction from your perspective did people really ride it as a means of quickly getting from tomorrowland to Fantasyland, or was it more like oh we haven't ridden the skyway yet oh it was the appeal of the i mean i'm sure people used it for transportation you know to get from you know if you're thinking about walt disney world at least it is a little bit of a trek from if you remember where the station was it's where that god awful stage is now where the incredibles dance party is yeah yeah and, of course, the other station was where the Tangled restrooms are. So it was a nice way to get from almost one end of the park to the other. But I think it was just more the appeal of people, of being up in the air in the sky bucket. And it was a fun little thing. I remember my grandma my grandma being uh, just terrified the whole, <laughs> the whole time. Uh, you are pretty high up in the air. At least over, I might be overestimating, at least 70-ish, 80-ish feet. Okay. I mean, the Matterhorn is pretty tall, and it went through pretty close to the top. It's just funny to think that it was in Disneyland for 40-some years, and yet, in Jeremy and my's, in Jeremy and, I don't know how to say that, in our park-going experience, like, it's never even been a thing, you know? Yeah. It's just strange. But one day it will be again, just not in the same way, I guess. No. No, obviously they're bringing these back just with a more practical experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I like. Me too. Because think about it, you won't have to wait for a bus. It's true. All right. The next piece of transportation that we're going to look at is the Disney monorail. Now, the monorail system has been around for a while. In fact, in my deep reading, I found that the first mentions of it really come about in like 1820s. Um, but they really didn't start becoming a mode of transportation until the late 1800s. Uh, Walt got the idea. He liked the idea of having this sort of futuristic um, monorail type transportation that will be a practical thing for people, um, particularly particularly in his vision of what Epcot would be, that this would be a mm. mode of transportation. Um, but by the time that the Disneyland monorail was built and opened in 1959, the idea of a monorail type system had already kind of passed. Uh, kind of culturally, from what I was reading, it was uh, rejected because you had in the 1950s and 60s, the American dream kind of included living in the suburbs, owning a car, owning mm. a home, and that kind of thing. Uh, so the monorail became kind of a theme park novelty by the time it opened in Disneyland in 1959. In 1959, uh, it was opened with, anybody remember who was there for the grand opening? Richard Nixon. president, yeah, yeah. No, vice president at the time, Richard Nixon and his family. And there's a really kind of uh, 
funny footage of they have the scissors the oversized scissors with the ribbon and they don't work and <laughs> they're trying to cut it and then walt grabs them and tries to cut it and the ribbon just won't cut at all uh, but that was the opening of the disneyland monorail the mark one trains um, which were designed by bob Gurr and his team they kind of over over uh saw that project and uh they had the mark one then the mark twos and then the mark threes so by the time walt disney world opens in 1971 the monorail loop is opened with it and they are at mark four trains uh when disneyland or excuse me walt disney world trains uh, monorail trains opened there were four stops you had the tt see you had the contemporary resort the magic kingdom and the Polynesian Resort. Uh, 1982, it is expanded with the opening of Epcot, and you have the Epcot line that opened as well. 1988, when the Grand Floridian opened, they added the Grand Floridian as a stop there. Um, So you have the Express Loop, and then you also have the Resort Loop, and you have the Epcot Loop uh, for monorails. Um, The current trains that we have are the Mark five um the mark four ran from 1971 to 1991 so they ran for 20 years and then the mark excuse me mark six mark fives opened in disneyland after the mark fours came to walt disney world now we are on the mark six which opened in 19 began uh, their service in 1989 and they continue to this day so we've had the same trains running or at least the same style so of trains. up to date yeah, well, because I think Disneyland got Mark... Aren't they on Mark 7 now? I think they got some new ones in the late 2000s. Oh, possibly. Because um, I think the ones you and I rode were only like five or six years old when we rode them. But yeah, Disney World's... Those Mark 6s are still kind of kicking. I mean, they're still falling apart <laughs> a little bit and they run down a lot, but... Yeah, now each of the, the Mark 6s, they are six cars long. And they can hold 20 seated passengers per car, as well as 40 standing passengers per car. So that's pretty good ride capacity, considering that there's like, what, six of them, I believe? Mm -hmm. I've been in a few of those uh, 40 people cars before. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've been in some that were more than that, but Mm -hmm. whatever. Nobody complained too much. Uh, the, The monorail, like I said, it's become another iconic symbol of particularly Disney theme parks. There are still places that you will find monorails running. I know Seattle has a monorail system, or at least it did. I don't know if it still does, but I believe it does. And even when I lived in Miami, their public transportation, which is not good at all, but they had a train that was a monorail type train elevated up onto rails um, because obviously in Florida, you can't go underground. Um, So, you know, this kind of concept is still around, but like I said, it's mostly associated with Disney parks and theme parks kind of thing uh disneyland originally it was just like a sightseeing tour of tomorrowland and then they it took them a few years but they finally expanded it to go outside the parks and they added another platform outside the park um so it kind of had a more functional role at walt disney world it's always had a functional role you get you from one place to the other and a little entertainment along the way There have been some famous incidents with the monorail over the years that I wanted to highlight. One in particular that I found very fascinating. It was in 19... One in particularly? Is that not the right word? (laughs) One in particular. There you go. Hold on, let me find it. I want to get the year right. Sorry. 
Well, while you're looking, uh, can I... The, the, uh, when they added the station that's outside the park in Disneyland, I had always heard that they added it for Disneyland Hotel. And then when you and I went, I remember thinking, this isn't even close to Disneyland Hotel. <laughs> like, the hotel guests still have to walk a pretty far way to get onto the monorail, which takes them to Tomorrowland. I only recently found out that Mon- Disneyland Hotel used to extend all the way out there to where the station is. Like, you can see old pictures where the monorail is pulling up right in front of that old-style hotel look with, like, the glass front. And I realized that they tore all that down, put a new station in the exact same spot, and now it's more more or less considered the downtown Disney station. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I thought that's where it was. Yeah, but Disneyland Hotel, in the last few years, has redone their pool area... And now their water slide is a monorail. And when I look at it, it looks exactly like the old pictures of when the monorail used to pull up actually in front of a building that was part of Disneyland Hotel. It looks just like that pool. So I realize now more than ever that that pool is really a nod to another building of the hotel that used to be there that's not anymore. But it's kind of a cool little nod to Disney history. Okay, so some incidents that have happened. February 12th, 1974... Uh, one monorail crashed into the back of another monorail as it pulled into the Magic Kingdom station. Now, the thing I find interesting about this uh, trip in particular is because this is the day before social media. This is the day and age before everybody had cameras on their cell phones. And Disney really tried to hide this incident from the press. Um, Apparently, the press back in the day used to listen to the police scanner all the time and anything that happened on Disney property, they immediately wanted to be a part of. So this happened at the end of the night. It crashed in. Disney denied anything had happened. There's even some reports that security was there and took the film out of people's cameras that witnessed the incident and then sent them back into the Magic Kingdom and said, go to the Kodak shop in there and get new film. Um, So they were like, deny, deny, deny. Then under the... um, disguise of night they towed the monorails into the maintenance area and painted them like i think it was monorail red was damaged and they painted monorail blue red overnight and said no look monorail red's fine it's right here but then like the paint started to fade over to, you know a couple months and it became like monorail purple at that point <laughs> um so it was oh. really interesting to me how they you know, kind of the, tried to paved that over but another incident in june of 1985 a fire engulfed the rear car of the uh mark four silver monorail as it was going from epcot to the ttc so that would be kind of freaky passengers in the car kicked out the side windows and climbed around the side of the train to reach the roof uh, where they were rescued by the reedy creek fire department so this was even back before they didn't have um the necessary emergency exits that they now have seven passengers were hospitalized for smoke inhalation or other injuries um 1991 a monorail train collided with a diesel maintenance work trek uh work tractor near the contemporary resort though two people were injured on that one another fire occurred in 1996 an electrical fire and then probably the most recent and uh very tragic incident was in uh, the wee hours of the night between July 4th and July 5th in 2009, um, the failed track switchover system on the Epcot line 
uh, caused Monorail Pink to be backed into Monorail Purple, and it killed the 21-year-old Monorail Purple pilot. Yeah, because I remember when they came out with the You Are Here mugs for Disney yeah. World, the color scheme of Epcot was just just like three tones. It was like white, silver, and purple, basically. And the purple happened to be the stripe on the monorail. And very quickly, Disney pulled it from shelves saying, maybe we shouldn't put the purple monorail on a mug. And I think you can still find a few of those somewhere. Does he might know how much those go for? Uh, yeah, for real. They're out there. Probably a lot. You know what one of my favorite things about the whole monorail system is? And, and there's much more to this system than the monorail. And I've, I, I've said this before. It's not illegal to do this. So, you know, just just take a little cruise one day. Go into the Magic Kingdom. You don't turn, you don't take the left you know, like you're going to the Magic Kingdom Park. You go to the right like you're going to the resorts or going to the contemporary and Fort, Fort Wilderness area. And you drive up there and you come to that intersection to where if you were to turn left, it would be like the Walt Disney, the Magic Kingdom bus stops. And if you were to turn right, it's the contemporary. If you go straight, you know, like cast members are going to park. Um, you can go back there. There's no signs. It's not employees only. You'll quickly notice that all of the uh, fun Disney color signs stop and they become very normal signs, which kind of gives you that subliminal. I'm not supposed to be here feel. If you keep going, you'll see the track that the monorails take uh, to go back to the maintenance hub. And if you just keep on going around that loop, uh, which is, again, perfectly legal, You'll see the entire like transportation hub back there where the monorails go for maintenance or, you know, they go during the night. I don't know if they go there every night for, you know, checkups and refills and all that stuff. They might go there every night. That's where they sleep. Yeah, that's where they sleep. That's correct. Like Thomas. There's lots of fun (laughs) stuff back there. At one point, you can look over to the left and clearly see uh, the area where the fireworks are launched for the Magic Kingdom fireworks show, and you could just go all the way around the entirety of the park and come back around around the uh, the Grand Floridian Resort when magically all the, the magic signs come back and you're back in Disney World. Um, it's interesting what you said, though, back to the monorails, about them being them going all the way back to the 1800s. Because from what I understand, the first ones in the U.S. weren't until right about the time Disneyland was opening, which is why Walt immediately was like, well, this is a transportation we have to use in my new city because it's new and it's fresh. And Yeah, yeah I don't remember where where they opened, but I did. I just read the concept started of a single, you know, mono, obviously meaning one and rail, so a single rail system train uh, dating all the way back to the 1820s and then kind of becoming uh, built in, in, in a reality in the late 1800s. Gotcha. Very cool. Also, it, I see a tie there between those two dates because in 1959, the monorail, like you said, Matt, opened at the same time as Matterhorn, which is just a few years after the Skyway. And both of those very much so have a Switzerland influence, a Swiss influence. So I don't know this, but Walt had to have taken like a big trip to Switzerland right before this. something, Or, or maybe he was just really passionate about that part of Europe. Yeah, but I think that's funny. Well, now where is the um, what's the what's the theme park? That's like the main, like the first real like theme park that influenced a lot in Disneyland, and it's somewhere over in in Scandinavia. Huh. And it's still around today. 
There were a lot of, um, you know, come to think of it, culturally speaking, in the 60s and 70s, there there was a, a large, for some reason, you know, following the 50s, uh, maybe the 50s, 60s, there was a large, weird Scandinavian culture that, that came into America because, like, fondue was huge in the 60s and 70s, wasn't it? It's kind of like a, the little hip thing to do in your home. You know, like, grandparents have, like, fondue pots and things. Well, Switzerland, Switzerland's not Scandinavia, is it? No, I'm thinking about Sweden. Okay. Swedish. That's the same, same, same thing. It's all the same oh, thing. They're all the You're same. They're all blonde, blue eyes. <laughs> hey, oh, no. We are equal opportunity offenders on this uh, podcast. So. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No one's left out. Um, the monorails. I've heard that these are very expensive to maintain. Or even, like, I heard that, like, the concrete beam... Or is it just concrete? The beams that they run on? Like, that they're really expensive to build. Two things. One, it's Tivoli's Gardens, and it's in Denmark, Copenhagen. Yeah, just want to throw that out there. Also, it is concrete, but it's... I was just reading this today. It's wrapped around some kind of core that makes it lighter weight. The oh. beams and things. Um, so it's, like, a super strong but lightweight material. So... If you give me a moment, I'll Google that again. Okay, well, while you do that, I was just thinking, like, over the years, you know, every once in a while, the rumor will pop up again, like, oh, they're building monorails to Hollywood Studios, or they're adding another monorail line. And the main argument is always, they wouldn't do that. It's too expensive and way too hard to maintain, which, as we've seen, is kind of true, because they keep falling apart. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons they're going with the Skyliner instead of another monorail. Do you think we'll say goodbye to the monorail sometime in the near future with a Skyliner expansion? I hope not. I mean, I hope not either. It's, they haven't updated the thing in 26 years, at Disney World at least. They put some new carpet in it. That's just not safe. Boy. I mean, we all know that that's a common sense statement, but seriously, they need to think about doing something. We need to, um, we, we ought to mention the monorail smell. It, it is one of those Walt Disney World iconic smells, I think. Maybe just to me. But, you know, you've got the, there, there are pleasant Walt Disney World smells. You know, Soren and the Main Street Bakery and Dole Whips and the resorts. And, and then there are those smells that aren't necessarily pleasant in and of themselves, but because of what they're associated with, they become pleasant, such as, um, you know, water, the water rides, pirate splash, you know, that mildewy air conditioning smell, the hydraulic smell, you know, and things. The monorail has its own stank, and it's a good stank. <laughs> it, it's like the mildewy AC mixed with sweat and a tinge of feces. No, we, we used to go to the St. Louis Zoo. Well, I mean, still go to the St. Louis Zoo growing up. But as a kid, you go in the ape house, and it had that, like, strong, pungent poop smell. And that's what the monorail gives me that same yeah, vibe. Yeah, it kind of—it's the circus. It's the yes. circus smell. Yeah, yeah. It's just hordes of animals, Species. just mm. pooping everywhere. E. coli. Okay, uh, I do have an update. Breaking news. Sorry, give me two, two seconds. Oh, monorail beams are made of concrete with a special polystyrene. Polystyrene. P o l y s t y r e n e. Um, core to lighten their weight. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. 
I do like how the Epcot line, when they added that, they gave you like a tour of Future World before you arrive at the station. I thought that was a nice little touch. Whereas Magic Kingdom, you know, it's just kind of like, we'll take you there. Yeah. And then drop you off. Yeah, but there's still something very like, I, I don't want the monorail going in Magic Kingdom. I, there's something no, wonderful yeah. about pulling up in that monorail right there and you see the entrance as you're pulling into the station like that is a magical moment in and of itself i agree well speaking of in magic kingdom let's move on to our third mode of transportation that we're talking about uh very much like the skyway which matt you said was the first use of that technology in the u.s and very much like the monorail which was just new to the U.S. at that time when it was introduced to a Disney park. The People Mover is a form of technology that Walt himself was involved with creating. Um, So I'm going to go back um, to the mid-60s when work began on the Florida Project, which, going back to the beginning of the episode, when when Walt first introduced this to the public, Marty Sklar was the one who wrote the script for this based on all of Walt's notes. Uh, But the Florida Project would include a larger version of Disneyland, but the centerpiece would be Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And this city would include, you know, shopping districts, people would work there, people would live there, and it would all be connected by a form of mass transportation known as the Wedway, W-E-D, which stood for Walt Elias Disney Way, the Wedway. (laughs) Way. (laughs) That stands for nothing. The idea was that all vehicles would be restricted to either underground tunnels or a one-way road that circled Epcot, like all buses, trucks, cars, stuff like that. So that way, all the transportation going from work and shopping and stuff like that, it would all be done with the Wedway system. And it kind of makes sense when you think of L.A. at that time, or even today, like the commute was terrible, all these vehicles were polluting the air... It kind of makes sense that Walt would try to think of a way that was more efficient that wouldn't rely so much on cars and traffic and stuff like that. With Tomorrowland and Disneyland finally starting to become the tribute to the future that Walt had always wanted it to be, this land seemed like the perfect place to test this new transportation system. So I think when we talked about, I don't remember what episode it was, but we talked about how when Disneyland opened, Tomorrowland was kind of an afterthought at the time. Like, they just didn't have time to finish it. And so over the next several years, they they had to slowly develop it into one, what they wanted it to become. And not until the mid-60s did it finally start to get there. And they added the People Mover system in 1967 as part of a new Tomorrowland. It was called People Mover presented by Goodyear. It opened on July, 6, July 2nd, 1967. At that time, all of Tomorrowland was given a much brighter color scheme. A bunch of kinetic energy was added to it. Now it was finally two stories. Like this is when the rocket jets were added up where the Tomorrow or up where the People Mover where you loaded. That's where the rocket jets were. So like Tomorrowland was just a, on a much bigger scale. It was two levels. There was so much happening. It's kind of funny. The cars, the people mover cars, remind me a lot of the Skyway buckets. I don't know if that was intentional. Oh, because they were covered. Yeah. Yeah. In Disneyland, the people mover vehicles were covered. Like, each one had an individual roof, roof, and the cars were painted, like, primary colors. Red and blue. Are you, are you making fun of that? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> roof. 
Yeah. I saw those screens. Anyway, uh, so 1967, that's when this happened, and it was going to be kind of a test for this Epcot that would come later on. Um, so here's how it worked. You moved up the moving ramp to get to the second story. You boarded the attraction by stepping onto that continuously rotating floor that we know and love. The vehicles constantly moved. Uh, when you loaded them, they were moving at about 1.5 miles per hour. Since each one had a roof, a roof... <laughs> How do you roof. say it? You're making fun of how I say it. I, I'm not making fun. You made fun of yourself. Oh, I say okay, roof. Okay. Roof. The roof would like tilt up because it was pretty short once you sat in the car and it lowered, but it would it would tilt up so that way the people in your party could board and then the roof would close inward, your doors would shut, and then it would kind of take off. Um, now, the ride system itself. This actually traced back to the 1964 World's Fair. So we've talked about many attractions that started there. It's a Small World started there. The Carousel of Progress. Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. And then there was a fourth one that we don't talk about a lot on this show because in its form, at the fair, it didn't really make its way into Disneyland. But in a way it did. The fourth attraction was the Ford Magic Skyway. Um, John Hinch worked closely with Walt Disney, and he, in an interview, talked about how they came up with the idea for this attraction while on a trip to the Ford Motor Company in Detroit. He says, Walt and I were invited to visit the mill where Ford made steel for car bodies. We saw a device for handling steel ingots. I don't know anything about cars. I-N-G-O-T-S. Masses of glowing red-hot metal. They were moved around on tracks powered by rollers from one area to another while being transformed into sheet steel. Walt asked, do you think we could put some kind of seat on that type of conveyor or some kind of arrangement for people to ride on? Do you think this thing would handle it? And obviously the answer was yes. And so what they did for this attraction at the World's Fair, they had actual Ford cars just constantly moving on a sort of conveyor belt as guests boarded the cars and then were able to see things as they passed by. Like, this is where Primeval World was, I believe. Yeah. And the Grand Canyon thing, too, right? Yes, the Grand Canyon, all these dioramas that people could look at while riding actual Ford cars. While that attraction itself didn't make its way to Disneyland, they used that technology for the, peop for the people mover. And the reason it was sponsored by Goodyear is because the trains themselves had no motors. Instead, the track itself powered the cars. About every nine feet, the trains would pass over these Goodyear tires, which turned via an electric motor and kind of propelled the vehicles onto the next set of tires, which would do the same thing. And the reason for this was that way you wouldn't have to worry about individual vehicles breaking down because the vehicles themselves are just pieces of plastic, basically. And if one tire broke down, you could kind of rely on the other tires to do the job until, you know, park closed at night, and then you could fix that one tire and it would be fine. Um, so that was the idea behind that. One thing I think is cool is the Disneyland track went uphill and downhill. Um, it actually went over the Skyway buckets at one point, which I thought was really cool. And of course, in, in Disney World, it's just a flat track, so we don't have that. Because it offers continuous boarding, it has a huge capacity. It, has, it is able to board 4,800 4, guests per hour. The number they had was 4,885, which is wow. like more than twice the number of most of the attractions at the Disney parks. So that's good. This historical nerdy stuff, I know. But um, the, the monorail and the people mover 
or the Wedway system were really the only, you said this, is really the only two systems of transportation that Walt wanted in this, the actual original plans for Epcot. And the monorail was your the inner city transport system from business to business and the little mall area and the courtyards and the, the high-rise businesses in the middle. And if you go see the model on the, on the People Mover at Disney World or you see some of the old pictures of the model or the drawings, you see how this is laid out, the big circle. And the, the People Mover, the Wedway, was the suburban transport system that would take you from the inner city of Epcot to the suburb suburbs where you lived and you can see the little churches and parks and and all that other stuff and it was like that continually moving all it was actually quite genius to think about that and and it's a shame that it's just never been kind of followed through on in, in a meaningful way but uh, yeah the monorail and the, the people mover together were kind of Walt's vision for transportation in the future yeah, and, and, and as Jeremy said, with the monorail, neither one of them really took on with the American public. And now people mostly look at them as theme park attractions. Who knows what what might have happened if Walt had still been around to push this idea. I don't know. Um, so in Disneyland, the ride was three-fourths mile. It lasted 16 minutes. The trains weaved in and out of Tomorrowland's many buildings and attractions. They traveled up to seven miles Per hour. Mm. Uh, on the ride, you would pass by two Mary B- Mary Blair murals. Uh, one thing I thought was kind of cool was, I, and I never considered this, you would pass right by the monorail, like just feet away. So yeah. that would be kind of interesting if you were moving pretty slowly and then this, this big monorail in comparison, you know, buzzes right past you. Um, it had views of the submarine lagoon. You could see inside the queue for the old attraction Adventure Through Inner Space. Of course, you got a view of the castle. You could see Autopia. You could see a model of Epcot, much like we have in Walt Disney World, but their model of Epcot was outside on the second story of the Carousel Building, which is where America Sings was for most of that time. Um, The ride had no roof like Walt Disney World's does because each vehicle had one, but then in Walt Disney World, they took off the roofs for the vehicles, and instead now the whole track has a covering over it. Um... Just like Disney World, it has four vehicles attached to each other, each vehicle fitting up to four guests. And like I said, it went uphill and downhill and all sorts of things. Um, Now, on July 1st, 1975, Walt Disney World opened its own people mover, but the system was a little bit different. It did not use Goodyear tires. It did not use tires of any kind. Instead, it uses linear induction motors. So electricity and magnets are basically... It's amazing. What power the trains. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and, and one reason for this is the the magnets don't wear like tires do. Tires very much, very quickly wear out. Magnets aren't going to do that. What happens is they switch on whenever a vehicle approaches. And then the opposing magnets kind of propel the vehicle forward. Uh, this is the same kind of technology that's used in launch roller coasters today, like rock and roller coaster. It's also used to slow down roller coasters when they come to the end of their ride. The uh, the hours like Disneyland's old people mover goes in and out of the buildings too, and that's one of my favorite parts of the people mover attraction. Even when I was little, I just thought that was the coolest thing that it went through buildings and you saw the Epcot model, and then you went actually inside Space Mountain, 
and uh, used to come around and see the inside of the all the Dream Flight, Take Flight, if you had wings, now Buzz Lightyear. You could see, you know, scenes in that. Uh, that was always the coolest thing to me. Yeah, in Walt Disney World, it opened six months after Space Mountain, so it was pretty easy to accommodate that. Like, to, they, were, they probably built that in when they built the attraction. Disneyland, it was a different story. In 1977, they closed the attraction... Or I guess before that, they closed it, and in 1977, it reopened, and now it was rerouted to go through their Space Mountain, mm. which opened that year. Um, this is, I did not know this, in 1982, uh, they added some wraparound screens to Disneyland's version, and on those screens, they projected footage of a light cycle race from Tron to give the illusion of speed. No? Well, then this Imagineer went on to work for Universal Studios and has been very <laughs> successful. <laughs> well, now I, don't want, now I don't want to say what I was going to say. I still think something like that would be kind of cool in some of those dark tunnels to add some yeah. sort of like, wow, I'm going fast. Whoa, what's happening? Yeah. What's, what, what's going on? Get me out. <laughs> so let's talk about when things started to change for the people mover. In the 80s and 90s. Okay, so you think about Tomorrowland in Disneyland in the 60s and 70s, it was very much focused on the space age. Like, you've got that giant rocket, the rocket jets. You've got... It's just very stark white. Like, there's a lot of space-type stuff going on. In the 80s and 90s, that kind of stuff was kind of considered outdated already. Like, we've already been to the moon, you know? So, and there was that attraction flight to the moon for a long time. And it's like, well, I mean, we, we've already been there. Um, you think about... <laughs> Uh, futuristic movies from the 80s and it's all like smog and darkness like Blade Runner, The Terminator you know, like it's more grungy than it is space agey and retro so, whereas today I personally think of the People Mover as like a retro version of the future I think in the 80s and 90s it just felt like an outdated version of the future. So they were trying to figure out something to do. Now you guys have seen pictures of Discovery Land in Paris right? Like they're Tomorrowland basically? Yes. It's very Jules Verne heavy, you know? It's got like a lot of steampunk. When that opened in 1992, Imagineers here were kind of encouraged to sort of recreate that for our versions of Tomorrowland. So when they redid Tomorrowland in Walt Disney World in 1994, it, it took less of a futuristic approach and more of just like a sci-fi approach. Um, so, you you know, you get Buzz Lightyear. Uh, the attraction itself was given the name Tomorrowland Transit Authority instead of the People Mover. And the story was that it was the real mass transit for this real city called Tomorrowland. And it took you by, like, the convention center, which is where Alien yeah. Encounter was, you know, being shown to people who had come to the convention center. Um, it was just, like, transportation. Now, in 2010, they added the name People Mover back to it, but it's still today called Tomorrowland Transit Authority People Mover. The only problem was, this opened pretty quickly after Paris, but Paris actually performed really poorly when it opened. Uh, the first few years were just not very good, so Michael Eisner got scared, and he decided, after all, he didn't really want to put too much money in redoing the Tomorrowland in Disneyland. So Disneyland had to figure out something to do on a very small budget. I've seen pictures this week that I did not know existed. They painted Space Mountain like a copperish green. I was there for this. 
Oh, oh okay. In 95. I had no idea. Like yeah. the like the building? Yeah, the whole building. Because they thought, like, they're only... They were focused so much on Discovery Land in Paris that they were like, well, let's just do that. But they had to do it on a small budget, which basically meant let's paint everything bronze and copper. <laughs> yeah. And so you think of, like, you know, the rocket jets used to be white on the second story. And now, just a few episodes ago, episodes ago, we, we pointed out and kind of made fun of the fact that now the Astro Orbiter is down basically in the hub. And, yeah. it, and it does still have, like, that copper steampunk look to it. Yeah. That all happened here when they did this 1998 change of Tomorrowland. And this is when the People Mover also left. And became the, the Jets. Yeah, mm-hmm. so the People Mover closed around this time. Um, I actually forget the date when they, when they actually closed. But Michael Eisner's idea, and I'm sure other people too, but I think he was the one who pushed it, let's redo this with a th- sort of steampunk attraction that's more exciting. It's more science fiction as opposed to like actual practical transportation. And that's when they built the attraction called Rocket Rods. And instead of going up to 7 miles per hour, they went up to 35 miles per hour. The only problem was they didn't change the track, and the track has a lot of sharp curves. You can't go around a sharp curve at 35 miles an hour. So these things would zoom, go really fast, almost like dual wheelie, and then whenever they got to a curve, they'd basically have to brake, and then do the curve slowly, and then zoom fast again. Um, some say the high speeds of the rocket rods actually damaged the structural foundations of the track itself because it was never meant to support such heavy and forceful vehicles. Um, some say that because they started and stopped like so often, constantly starting and stopping, that it wore out the tires that were being used. Um, so this, this attraction only lasted two or three years. It was closed, and ever since, the track has just sat there unused. Yeah. Some say Michael Eisner finally visited a junior high and heard that the name Rocket Rods is probably not the best name for an attraction. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Oh, it means what now? Uh, no, when I went in 95, I specifically remember Space Mountain was bronzy gold, and they were testing the Rocket Rods, but they were not yet open. But watching videos of these things is like no wonder it went it just didn't work because it is exactly you get like five seconds of a burst and then it's like and then the ride's only like five minutes long (laughs) yeah yeah it used to be 16 and it dropped down to like a three minute attraction well not to mention it sounds like you get really bad whiplash on these things (laughs) probably so now if i'm not incorrect i believe the ride system used for the rocket rods though was the system Maybe I'm making this up. That was later used for Test Track and then Radiator Springs Racers. It could be. I don't know. I don't know what that ride system is called, but it's that kind of trench track thing they've got going on. Like start, stop, start, stop. That's probably what it's called. Yeah, yeah, that's it. When I look objectively at this whole 1998 redo, I can see what they were trying to do. Like, I actually really like the, the look of Discovery Land in Paris. And in the 90s, yeah, that that version of Tomorrowland that they had was getting kind of stale. So I can see them trying to do this steampunk look. The only problem was they just didn't have any money to do it. And a lot of paint isn't going to solve your problems. Mm -mm. Okay, I'm watching video right now of the rocket rods. First off, these things are 
ugly. Oh my gosh. They look like, like airboats, don't they? They do. They look terrible. Like, who thought that was a good idea? All right, here we go. Now, oh, so they do move kind of fast. Yeah. They don't go up on a wheelie, though. I'm not seeing a wheelie. Maybe I'm wrong about that. This is like a, like a POV type video. Gotcha. And they're going, oh, wow, look at Space Mountain there. You're right. Oh, Lord, no. Why did they paint it that color? I know. I don't know when they painted it back. This looks like they went to a craft store, and there was the copper paint was on sale. Uh-huh. And they just painted everything. And then, see, now, another thing, too, is not only does it slow down on the curves, but it's a lot of stop and go as well, because you got to wait for the rocket ahead of you to clear. Mm-hmm. No, this this was a bad idea. I don't know. Now, I'm going to play the devil's ad- advocate for a second because everybody in Disneyland mourns the loss of the people mover. And I get it because it went away pretty soon and the replacement was bad and it ruined the chances of bringing back the original because it damaged it so much. But do you think if the people mover were still there today, would it be one of those attractions where they're like, why is the people mover still here? Like, it's such an old form of transportation. Why are we doing it? I don't know. I doubt it because they're still... Ooh, the monorail really is close as it goes by. Um, I, I think that the People Mover would be loved because it's loved in Walt Disney World. I don't think it's, it's, it's hated on. I don't look at the People Mover and go, oh, that's so old. No, I look at it and say, oh, wow, that's a wonderful attraction that you can relax on and get wonderful views of the Magic Kingdom that you can't get any other way. And it's got a lot of charm to it. And I imagine Disneyland's would have that same charm. One of the things I noticed just watching this video as well is there are windows still that I assume were used with the People Mover where you got some pretty good views. But you don't get those views with these rocket rods because you're going by pretty fast. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, I like to think you're right about that. And, it, you know, we, we, you and I have been to that Tomorrowland, and it does lack a lot. And I think a ton of it has to do with kinetic energy being gone. Like, not just the people mover not being there, but the rocket rods not being on the second level anymore. I'm sure that added a ton of energy to that area. And now it just all feels so stale. It does. And it's just so spread out that, you know, with, with the Astro Orbiter all the way into the hub... Space Mountain is tucked into a corner that you really can't see until you're right there in front of it. There's really nothing to look at in that Tomorrowland. Yeah, you're right. It's it's missing a lot. Which is why I believe that once Tron gets built here at the Magic Kingdom, we will have the best Tomorrowland out of all the parks. It's hard to argue with that. Yeah. Even with Stitch <laughs> and Buzz Lightyear and Monsters, Inc., we will still have the best. Yeah. Uh, People do love the People Mover. In fact, this year for the March Madness tournament that the Disney Parks blog did, you know, they pit 64 attractions against each other. And the ultimate champion was the Walt Disney World Tomorrowland Transit Authority People Mover, which says something about the lasting power of that attraction. Well, it's just hard. It's hard not to enjoy because, one, it's something everybody can do. Uh, you know, grandma can ride the people mover and, you know, your, your two-year-old can ride the people mover. Everybody can enjoy it. It's not anything that's in your face. So, you know, one of the reasons people dislike attractions that are geared towards children is because they're so obnoxious in many ways. 
nothing is obnoxious about the people mover and like you said you can get on there and you can close your eyes and go to sleep and it's a good long nap or you can just enjoy the views and enjoy the breeze and be above everybody it's just a unique experience now to wrap up the people mover discussion it should be noted that it was not introduced to cities it was not introduced to shopping malls like walt had hoped but much like the monorail can still be found in seattle the wedway system is still used at the George Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston. Oh, so look at there. There you go. There you go. All right. So, what do we think about the futures of these attractions? Are they all pretty much guaranteed to stay? I mean, obviously the Skyway's gone, but we're sort of getting it back. I'm gonna be. It, it's gonna be interesting to see where the gondolas go. Obviously, it's cheaper than a monorail system. Uh, otherwise, they would have expanded the monorail. Um, I think Matt's right that I think I think the monorail's days are numbered in the sense of it's not going to expand. It's going to continue to be a thing as it is until it's too expensive to maintain. And then it too will, will go uh, the way of, of, of many things that have come and gone. Uh, the gondolas seem to be the future in, in some way. I guess it's a cheaper mode. They figure they can get more people moving on it. The big question is, are they going to be able to maintain it? Uh, because I can't imagine one of them things breaking down somewhere along the line, and then you're backed up all the way. That's the problem with these kind of systems. Same with the monorail. Something breaks down on your track, there's no alternative way to get around it. So your whole track is backed up. Uh, that's going to be an interesting uh, thing to see, how, how well these things hold up. Matt, would you ever want to see the Skyway come back to Magic Kingdom, or do you think it's better off without it? You know, in retrospect, it's one of those things that we remember fondly. And like I said, it was iconic in the parks for a very long time. But it was also problematic in that it gave you views of things that you didn't... Well, maybe you want to see them. But Disney maybe doesn't want you to see them. I mean, you could clearly see, you know, backstage show buildings and mm. and um, interesting when you went. I mean, you saw the roofs of the the dark rides and the buildings, and it's just you know, it's kind of unsightly. So, hmm. well, I mean, the gondola system is going to give us that. You know, it's going to give us cast member parking and all sorts of things. Well, maybe. Maybe well, I mean, you will be high up in the air. I'm sure. I wonder the 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 routes they will take, and there's certain ways that you're not going to be able to avoid that. Now, you know, the monorail. I always, I always say from the monorail going through the contemporary, you can see like the, the big old industrial laundry hamper out by the side and the the dumpsters and stuff. So there's a certain amount you're not going to be able to avoid. But uh, I think the Skyway system being inside the park in a themed environment was. A little jarring. Yeah. It could be a little a little jarring. I think they'll find ways around the Skyway being or the Skyliner being um, obtrusive like that. It wouldn't surprise me if you had like panoramic windows in your gondola, but if they wanted you to look a certain direction, if they like, you know, those windows that have like the frost that come on. Yeah. And so maybe all of a sudden the right side frosts up because they don't want you to look that way. So you're forced to look to the left or to the front or whatever. That, w- that wouldn't surprise me at all. That would be cool. Like Elsa, she's like, she puts her hand <laughs> on the window and ice is over. Oh, I don't know about that, but, you know, something to the effect of 
you know, your character or whatever, you know, maybe they're narrating your, your passage. To your left, you'll notice the blah, 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 blah. And so the right side will, you know, and block. And so you force to look to the left. I like that. That's cool. We'll see. Um, probably in the next five years, but not too soon. We will see what they do with these. One thing I thought was really cool at the last D23 Expo two years ago. Well, now I don't know which. I was going to say they had a people mover train on display that you could like sit in, but it might have been a Skyway bucket. They look so similar to me. I think it was a Skyway bucket. But I thought that was really cool. They had, had they had one out where guests could take pictures with it and stuff. You know, the bright red bottom. So Yeah. One of those unsightly times I remember in 1998 flying over, flying over, you know, riding over on the Skyway, being able to see behind the construction walls of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride as it was being turned into. I mean, you could you could see, you know, it's just photo ops they're not going to want. You could see the, the, the marquee. You could clearly see. And I was like, oh, there's the Wayne the Pooh sign or whatever. Uh, that's stuff they don't want people seeing. Especially in today's world where everything makes it onto Twitter. Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> you, I remember um, purposefully going into Columbia Harbor House up onto the the walkway mm-hmm. bridge area to peek into the tangled bathrooms construction. Yeah. So you're right. People, people like us are obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, this was a fun little discussion. I, I think it's important to talk about these because they're also closely associated with Walt himself, which, you know, the three of us always love talking about stuff like that, diving into Disney history. Um, so if the, you know, if listeners, if you have any fun facts about these, um, modes of transportation or fun stories or fun memories, let us know. We love talking about them and we love hearing from you. You can reach out to us at comments at madchatters.net or on Twitter and Instagram at madchatters or on our Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you next week. Can, can we take a minute to just tease our next week's episode? Next week, something big is returning to the Mad Chatters podcast. So, Call the neighbors, wake the kids, put in your teeth. It's going to be a good one. And take a little time to find the magic in every day. Bye-bye now. and it killed the 21-year-old monorail purple pirate. Let me say that again. Monorail purple pilot.